0: Chapter 21.
2: Well, Mrs. Bennett is devastated. Lizzie has ruined everything by not marrying Mr. Collins. But luckily, conversations about Lizzie's grand betrayal are fizzling out. The girls walk to Meriden one day and run into handsome Mr. Wickham and he confesses that he skipped the Netherfield ball, not because he had business elsewhere, but because he didn't want to be in the same ballroom as Darcy. He walks Lizzie back to Longbourn, and she is excited for him to meet her parents. But once they're home, Jane gets a letter from Caroline Bingley, and that quickly quells all thoughts of Wickham. Caroline and her party are leaving Netherfield, including Bingley himself— and they don't think that they're coming back anytime soon. Elizabeth is aghast. She thinks that Caroline is trying to keep Bingley away from Jane. Jane refuses to think so ill of her new friend, but she is heartbroken that Bingley clearly doesn't love her as much as she loves him. Remember that scene at Netherfield where everyone was sitting around the parlor teasing Bingley about his easygoing character? Bingley joked in that chapter that if a friend told him to leave someplace, he would probably just get on the horse and go. Here, in classic Austin fashion, we see the truth beneath that small joking comment, which may be why Lizzie is able to come to the right conclusion. He told her, And it must be lovely for Jane that her sister can love her so much that with one piece of data about Bingley, Lizzie just knows that Jane is not the kind of woman you leave behind by choice. Chapter 22. Just days after Collins professed his utter devotion to Lizzie, he devotes himself to Charlotte Lucas, proposing marriage to her now. Now, Collins is looking for a wife and came to Hertfordshire for a wife, but the turnaround from Lizzie to Charlotte is a bit of a whiplash, even for the time. Here is Jenny Davidson, professor of English at Columbia University, on how Austin's readers of the time would have read Collins's abrupt shift from Lizzie to Charlotte.
3: I think that a contemporary reader or a reader now who's attuned to the norms of the period would have been laughing with incredulity at how inappropriate the speed with which Mr. Collins goes to Charlotte is. And yes, we do think that that's very crass of her. Elizabeth Bennett sees there being a kind of coldness or mercenary quality in Charlotte, that having known that Literally, within days prior to his proposal to her that he has at least presented himself as being in love with Elizabeth, you know th- that it's obviously wildly inappropriate to think of somebody transferring their affection so easily. Austin is somebody who takes marriage very seriously but from a Christian standpoint as well as from a human <laughs> from a sort of merely human standpoint. The shallowness of mr Collins's ideas about marriage are a big part of what the novel is asking us to laugh at and to be horrified by and so forth.
2: Charlotte accepts Collins' proposal, and she is more worried about telling Lizzie than she is about being married to Collins. When she does tell Lizzie, Lizzie only ekes out one inappropriate comment before... While horrified, congratulating Charlotte with all politeness, it is a tense scene where two friends, two theories of marriage, are staring each other down. And we know how Austen feels about this, because in 1814, just one year after Pride and Prejudice came out, she wrote this to her niece... I entreat you not to commit yourself farther and not to think of accepting him unless you really do like him. Anything is to be preferred or endured rather than marrying without affection. With all of this said, though, Charlotte makes compelling points about the union, and Austin herself doesn't seem to entirely be judging Charlotte for her decision. It seems as though what she is judging is an institution in which a 27-year-old is so trapped that she has no choice but to marry without affection. Charlotte is 27, but Austin, when Pride and Prejudice came out, was 33 and unwed. So she all too well understood the predicament that Charlotte is in. Here is professor at Vassar College Susan Zlotnick, on what is going on in this exchange between Lizzie and Charlotte.
4: You know, there's that very famous conversations where she's like, Charlotte, how could you marry him? You know? And Charlotte's like, well, you know, I never thought marriage was about love. And otherwise I'm gonna be this like appendage on my brothers who are gonna have to support me for the rest of my life. And Austin knows what that's like because that was Austin's life. And she's like, given those options, this is my best option. You know, marriage for me is just about having a sort of place in society, right? It's literally a home. And Elizabeth is all like, "Oh my God, that's terrible, you know that's why would you only want that kind of prudent marriage? I want a romantic marriage. And it's not even clear to me that when she finally marries Darcy or accepts Darcy, it's because of romance. There's never a moment where she's like, oh, I'm you know deeply in it's the novel's really skeptical about that kind of passionate romance, right? That's what that's what Lydia and Wickham are. You don't want that. And maybe you don't want the Collins' marriage either. But the Collins' marriage is a lot better than the Wickham marriage. So if it comes down on the side of any marriage, it comes down on the side of the Collins'. I think ideally it wants both. It wants some kind of compromise. And I think it's trying to argue that the Darcy marriage would be that compromise of, you know, head and heart. But I'm not sure I believe it.
2: In Chapter 23, Mrs. Bennett finds out about Charlotte and Collins' engagement Sir William and Mrs. Lucas are looking with greedy eyes towards Longbourn. Jane is getting more upset about not hearing from Bingley. Elizabeth feels like her friendship with Charlotte is over. The prospects for the Bennetts look bad as Volume 1 comes
5: to an end.
2: I'm Vanessa Zoltan.
5: And I'm Lauren Sandler.
2: And this is Live from Pemberley from Hot and Bothered. Lauren, these chapters break my heart. So much sad. So much
5: sad and yet also so much comedy, right?
2: Yes, yes. (laughs) What do you have to teach us before we jump
5: in? Well, the thing that I've been thinking about is really about the comedy element of things. You know, Pride and Prejudice is pretty universally considered a comedy of manners. And I went down quite a rabbit hole to determine whether or not I agree with that. And I don't think I do. So let's Ooh. let's go down this rabbit hole together and we can figure out what we think about it. So a comedy of manners is, is a type of story that has its roots in Greco-Roman times. There were plays that had plots around marriage and love and desire, often mistaken identity. They tended to satirize a social class. And that that sort of planted the roots for this sort of story. But the real grand age of the comedy of manners, what we really tend to think of is the restoration period. Yeah, and we talked about the restoration during last episode as sort of this body time, a time of adultery and licentiousness, a time when, you know, that was not just happening in bedrooms, but not coincidentally, also on the stages of theaters and between the covers of books. (laughs) So, you know, this was... For example, the work of Ben Jonson. This is the work of Moliere, who was widely translated and was incredibly popular throughout England during that era and continued to be you know, you would have conniving lovers or class jumpers, you would have interfering old biddies. And there wasn't a lot of exploration of character in them. They were very, very farcical. And yes, they were satires. They definitely were skewing class mores, but they weren't really allowing viewers or readers to look into the human condition. And with that in mind, it does occur to me that I don't think that Pride and Prejudice really fits the form. You know, there is the novel of manners, which is different than the comedy of manners. That's what we think of when we think of Edith Wharton or Evelyn Waugh. And obviously... This is a very, very different form. It's not one that leans into farce in the same way. I would say that Pride and Prejudice is a novel of manners. You know, Austen has so much more empathy for her characters. She has so much more interest in the circumstances that characters find themselves in. And as as you were saying, just before I started talking about comedy, the pain in that, right? These are things that really coexist in Pride and Prejudice. So as much as Collins and Wickham may feel like sort of stereotypes in certain ways, right? Even with them, I think we have some level of curiosity. And frankly, for pretty much everyone else in the book, these aren't tropes in a way that goes unexplored, if indeed they're tropes at all.
2: Lauren, I love this distinction that you're making between a comedy of manners and a novel of manners because I've always hated comedies of manners. I've talked about this before. I always just want to like jump on stage and explain to everybody what's gone wrong. And yeah, it's like the jokes are always at the expense of the women. And I don't like like really body humor in that way. I just find it juvenile. But I don't know this like way of thinking about a novel is a novel of manners. What do you mean of about that?
5: Well, so the ways in which a comedy of manners is really interested in the customs of social class and in the ways that the customs of social class can entrap or confuse or limit a person's life. The novel of Manners carries all of those things, right? I mean, Middlemarch is a novel of Manners, but no one would ever call Middlemarch a comedy. You would never call The Age of Innocence a comedy. There may be humorous moments in them, but they're not written for the sake of comedy. But I think that part of where it gets complicated with Austin is she is so brutally funny and she is so, so brilliant at weaving her wit through the cases that she wants to make and through bringing us into these impossible situations. So she's such a deft social critic and yet she's not throwing anyone under the bus necessarily.
2: It feels like Moliere is using the structures in order to laugh at people. Whereas Austin is laughing at people, but she's pointing to the structures and being like, aren't they ridiculous? She's like, look at how high the stakes are. This is actually really impacting women's lives. This is actually really impacting men's life. This is impacting the way that the world works. Whereas Moliere is like, aren't people ridiculous? And I'm going to use social structures to point to how ridiculous people are. But he's not criticizing the structures because the structures benefit him.
5: I think that's a really good distinction. And I think that Austen is a really crucial pivot between, for example, Moliere and Edith Wharton. Right. And I think that they give rise to what we think of as contemporary novels for the most part right now.
2: Yeah. You know, and obviously, I'm always really skeptical when we're like, this is the woman who changed it all. Because we know, right, that Frances Burney was, you know, coined the phrase Pride and Prejudice, you know, that Austen is using. And of course, there are all sorts of in-between things, but I do think Austen is staking a claim on laughing at the structures and also being like, but they're no joke.
5: And this, of course, you know, she's writing in a pre-Victorian moment. This becomes so important during the Victorian era. It becomes sort of the crucial mode to have empathy for characters while understanding them within oppressive social situations.
2: I mean, Mrs. Bennett is, like, the epitome of this to me, at least in these chapters. She's horrible, right? Like, she is pinning everything on Lizzie and her decision. And, like, that is just so much pressure to put on a 19-year-old kid, right? Like, you hold our family's future in your hands. And then – Sir William Lucas and Mrs. Lucas come over and are like, are speculating about how long Mr. Bennett is gonna live. Like the measuring tape is out. And I feel like Austin is in this way that you're pointing to, not having it both ways in a in a bad way, but is like, God, Mrs. Bennett is insufferable and she's also right. And both are true. And she's so funny, and yet this is a life and death situation.
5: Exactly. I mean, she's the perfect example, I think, of the person who seems like the most extreme trope. And yet we literally see the stakes of it. We see them casing the joint. We know that she will be evicted. We know that it's all over for her and her daughters because of this decision that has been made. And yet Austin is still playing with the stereotype, right? She's still showing us this sort of like clucking classless biddy who just can't Bear to do anything but spout her misery about it, which, of course, comes back to the question of manners.
2: Mm-hmm. Right. Because, of
5: course, this was the delineation in which class might be determined by what you own and how long your family had owned it, but it also was determined by how you behaved. And Mrs. Bennett's classlessness is on full display here. And it it exists in a very marked contrast to Sir William Lucas, who is behaving with just as little class in so many ways, right? I mean, he's like getting out the actuarial tables trying to determine when Mr. Bennett's going to kick it and this joint is going to be his daughter's. And yet he's being nothing but polite to Mrs. Bennett, who's acting really difficult.
2: Right. I mean, it's so interesting. I had really never paid attention to when Austen ends her chapters or when she ends a volume of a book. And I don't think that it's an accident that the curtain comes down at the end of volume one with all of the potential that had been worked up to being gone. Bingley is gone. Netherfield is no longer let, right? Like, Netherfield is let at last. They are gone. Mr. Collins was going to come. Collins is gone, and like the the one maybe hopeful is Wickham. Lizzie has brought Wickham home to meet her parents, but there isn't an actual pursuit here. We know that Wickham is poor. And so this family is as hopeless as when we met them by the end of this volume.
5: And this is the first time that I really spent time reading very closely and feeling very freaked out by the very end of this volume, by the last sentence. So... The volume ends with Mrs. Bennet saying, why should he have it more than anybody else, referring to Collins and the entail? And Mr. Bennet ends the volume saying, I leave it to yourself to determine. And it was the first moment in which it occurred to me, perhaps the entail was really about Mrs. Bennet. Perhaps there was this feeling that Mr. Bennett had shown such an error of judgment by marrying a woman so low beneath him and someone who simply could not behave, could not demonstrate the sort of manner that was incumbent upon someone well born. Like she couldn't even fake it, right? And perhaps that was the reason that the entail happened and things were moved over to Collins was because they felt like they could not entrust this house to this woman running it or to the man who would choose her as his wife.
2: Oh, I think that's such a great reading and so plausible based on what the experts we've talked to have said. I know when we talked to Professor McPherson, right, she said, we don't know how long this has been entailed. It could be one generation. It could have been 10 generations. And we don't find out in the novel. And this sort of threatening sentence right at the end would explain a lot about the dynamic. And I love that as a close reading, Lauren.
5: And that it comes after we've been so immersed in her worst behavior so far. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, she may have made a little bit of a spectacle of herself at the ball or at Netherfield, but there's something about this that feels like deep and dark and unteachable in a certain way. Yeah.
2: Lauren, there's this one line where it says that Collins thought about paying his addresses to one of the younger girls, and then the narrator shifts focus and says, and Mary might have been prevailed upon to accept him. She rated his abilities much higher than any of the others. There was a solidity in his reflections which often struck her, and though by no means so clever as herself – She thought that if encouraged to read and improve himself by an example such as hers, he might become a very agreeable companion. And I find this so tragic, like twice over. I'm very happy for Charlotte. I love Charlotte. And I'm glad that she gets to be married. And, you know, there's definitely a concern that if she hadn't snagged Collins, she would have never been married. But... It sounds like Mary would have respected him and kind of liked him, and he might have been happy enough with Mary, and then the house would have stayed in the family, and yet, you know, just the miscommunications or the lack of communications that prevent a whole different fate from playing out, just, it made me really sad.
5: And it also feels like if Collins isn't going to propose to Mary, who on earth would propose to Mary? I mean, like, this is the couple you ship out of the whole novel, right? I would hope that Mary could live out the rest of her years sitting by the fireplace with, you know, twinned copies of Four Dice Sermons, clucking over what was most actionable in the lessons. (laughs) You know, I, I feel like she deserves happiness as much as anyone else, and... Collins does seem like the person who could have given her a companionable marriage and perhaps even a very romantic one. And we'll never know. And again,
2: I just I'm obsessed with Austin as someone who points out miscommunication. Just how how a passing thought cannot be articulated. And therefore the fates of 10 people, 20 people between the Lucases and the Bennets and Lady Catherine de Burke are shifted. I think that it's just so brilliant.
5: I mean, it truly feels like the argument of this book is that miscommunication is what makes life happen or not. And I think that that's actually a really fair argument. I think that that's entirely true. I do, too. I absolutely do, too. I also, I'm pissed at Mrs. Bennett for not saying a Collins. You know, I, I understand that you were interested in Jane, but I really think that Mary is so much your type. You know, have you, have you considered how learned she is and how much... She could be just the perfect helpmate for your parish. The two of you would draw so much respect and have so much commonality. If she was like a really smart yenta, I feel like that's what she would have done, knowing that Lizzie's going to get snapped up by someone eventually. What prospects is Mary (laughs) going to have? It also feels like, why is she not interested in Mary's happiness? The other thing, Lauren,
2: is, and this is something we've mentioned before, but it's just like That beauty is a commodity. And, you know, we made fun of Collins earlier that he was like, I'll marry Jane. She's the oldest and hottest. And he comes to town in part to, like, see if the Bennett sisters are as hot as everybody says they were. And that he'll be happy to marry them if they are. And then Lizzie is, like, pretty enough, right? And then, like, part of our concern about Mary is that there are implications that she's the least pretty of the five girls. Not implications. It's stated But then he's like, screw it. I don't have to marry a pretty girl. I'll marry Charlotte, who probably is perfectly pretty. But Mrs. Bennett tells us that she isn't, you know. And I don't know, right? Poor Mary is potentially scared because she isn't conventionally beautiful in the way that her two stunning older sisters are. Right? One is the most beautiful woman in the village. And the other, I don't know if you know, Lauren, has very fine eyes.
5: (laughs) I mean, it does seem to be the totality of what a woman is worth, which I think we we certainly feel now as well. This is not an aberration of its age. But we've also seen that that was the totality of what Mrs. Bennett was worth. And that's what landed her a marriage that seemed above her class, that was above her class, at least temporarily, And certainly, it's hard to imagine what Mary could do to improve herself in a way that would appeal to Collins, other than what she has already done. And she's still not even worth taking notice of. You know, I think that what Austin is showing us, and I think that many people can continue to relate to this, is that without the looks, you got nothing. And that there is very, very little that a woman can do other than be born incredibly wealthy. To ever secure any happiness or comfort for themselves in life unless they happen to be born on the right side of the genetic lottery.
2: So speaking of that, right, that's Charlotte, right? Like Charlotte has been seen, at least again by Mrs. Bennett, as, oh, it's too bad, she's not pretty. And yet, right, like she does this and the text tells us she is angling for it. She is like really playing for Collins and she is like, okay, Lizzie dropped this scrap. I'm gonna come in and scoop it up.
5: And of course, what do men really want other than a woman to be hot, right? Do they want someone to be sort of a meeting of the minds in terms of what they think or what they read? No, they want someone who's going to listen to them and show up for them and Be there to stroke their ego, especially when it's bruised and to dote, to pay attention, etc. And of course, this is what Charlotte is doing in angling. She's not deciding that she needs to all of a sudden become an expert in biblical literature or even how to appropriately set up a house so that it would appeal to Catherine de Bourg. It's simply just being by his side whenever he needs a conversation partner to shine upon him or to make him seem like he's a big man. And that's what Charlotte's doing because she, I'm sure, has observed human behavior for 27 years and knows that she needs to get it right if she's going to get anything at all.
2: Oh, and we know she's a shrewd observer of human behavior, right? Again, I know I keep saying this, but, like, Lizzie thinks she's the shrewd observer, but Charlotte's been right about everything. Charlotte has been playing for Colin since before he even proposed to Lizzie. Charlotte is like, Jane should go for Bangley Harder, right? Like, she knows what's going on. And Lizzie, right? Like Lizzie is thanking Charlotte for like taking care of Mr. Collins. She's like, oh, that's so nice of you to be distracting him. And Charlotte's like, sure, Lizzie, I'm distracting him. Like you idiot, right? She's like totally missing what's going on right under her nose.
5: It is interesting to think about Charlotte as maybe the proxy for Jane Austen in this story. Mm. You know, I think we think about how Jane is named for Jane Austen and how Lizzie one would think is the protagonist that Austen is putting her own wit and observations into. But I actually think it's really Charlotte. Charlotte, who's the plain one. Charlotte, who feels like she has no real prospects. And Charlotte, who is the true observer of social behaviors and is using that as her only way to achieve some sort of stability.
2: Yeah. I mean, it's certainly Charlotte. Charlotte is living an alternate life, right, of Austen's. You know, Austen was able sort of through her pen to say no to this kind of marriage. You know, we know that she was engaged for 24 hours and then got out of it. But, yeah, I think that this is like an alternate life of Austen's. If she couldn't write, this would have been the choice that she would have made. I do think, Lauren, in Lizzie's defense— I think she recovers very quickly from the news. Charlotte says, we're engaged. And the text tells us that Lizzie could not help crying out, engaged to Mr. Collins, my dear Charlotte, impossible. And then the text tells us, right, like Charlotte answers her and it's Lizzie had now recollected herself and making a strong effort for it, was able to assure with tolerable firmness that the prospect of the relationship was highly grateful to her. And I just think that that, that's impressive of Lizzie, who loves Charlotte so much and finds Colin so ridiculous. I feel like people judge her for like being like, what? You're doing what? And I'm like, I think she did really well here.
5: I also it's so funny. Whenever I think about this book, I think of this moment as being a a massive part of the book. Right. Huge rupture between the two of them. Like it's a big scene. It's a big dialogue. It's literally you just read the whole thing. (laughs) I did. I know. I have me too. It's a moment. It's a couple lines. And yet I think that that's so true. So knowing about friendship is like one line will just escape your lips and then you can't put it back. And it's been said. And when something like that has been said within a friendship, it can determine the course of trust and love between two friends forever. Right. Oh,
2: absolutely. And I mean, I think one of the things that's beautiful about, you know, volume two is that we see this friendship be changed, but bounce back. These two girls love each other too much.
5: And of course, it gives us an occasion to really think about what marriage is, because we we get to hear Charlotte defend it in a way that is so much more systemic than just her own personal situation. You know, she says, I am not a romantic, you know, never was. I ask only a comfortable home. And considering Mr. Collins's character, connection, and situation in life, Charlotte says, I am convinced that my chance at happiness with him is as fair as most people can boast on entering the marriage state. There are people who say, you know, it's kind of random who you marry, Does it really matter? You know, marriage is not how you feel and where it begins in that moment. Marriage is what you make with another person over years and years and years. You know, love can grow. Connection can grow. Also, love can vanish. Love can erode. Betrayal can happen. What it means to come together often has so little to do with what it means to stay together. But far more than that, you know, what else is her chance at happiness?
2: I mean, we certainly see what Charlotte is saying bearing out in the novel, right? Mr. Bennett and Mrs. Bennett married because he was into her, and that didn't work out great. And, right, like, she's just saying the way that marriage is in general, things don't tend to shake out necessarily based on how into people are at the beginning. Not to mention, like, One of the things that Charlotte is saying is, like, I have observed that life is capricious. And I obviously disagree with her. I think that you have a better chance if to conjure what Austin said to her niece. Like, you have a better chance if you like and respect, you know, the person who you're going to marry. But I don't know. There are things you can imagine Charlotte respecting about Collins. The fact that he wanted to marry one of the Bennett sisters, right? Like, does him justice. that. That's where my list ends. But
5: in theory, there are good things about the guy. Well, she does list his character first, and then his connection, and then his situation in life. And, you know, we've also seen that a situation in life can be changeable. That when Mrs. Bennett married Mr. Bennett, I think that she imagined a long legacy of at least stability for for future generations. And so... You know, I think that Charlotte has seen how the sausage is made and has has sort of put her bets on the situation that seems most stable for her. I mean, she says, as part of this scene, for an educated, not terribly handsome 27-year-old, what else am I going to do? There is no option for me but marriage, and marriage has not been an option. And yet, you know, I still get really sad. I get really sad that this is the only option for someone like Charlotte Lucas is to consign herself to a domestic and frankly, sexual life with someone who she does not feel personal affection for, because unless you are the very rare exception of Jane Austen, what else do you get to be?
2: Yeah. What career is available to her?
0: Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today.
2: Lauren, we would be remiss, of course, if we did not speak about our beautiful Jane.
5: Jane. No.
2: I feel like this is when we find out like Jane really does love Bingley. We've known until now that she's liked him. But she she's heartbroken by this. And she's heartbroken by the Bingley sisters, by Mrs. Hurst and Caroline. She also seems to take this friendship very seriously.
5: She's so not an operator. She's such yeah. an authentic person. She just You know, she's led by feeling and she's one of the very few people in this story who are. And I think we really, really feel it when we feel the hurt. I mean, of course, like I'm so on Team Lizzie when it comes to thinking about Caroline. I just feel like, are you kidding me? (laughs) How on earth are you buying this bullshit? You know, and Caroline's just sort of like calling her dearest friend and, you know, just like swanning all over their friendship as she is is manipulating and dismissing. And I just I despise it. But I really despise it the most, not just because of how Caroline is acting, but that she's doing it to Jane, to Jane, who, you know, is just unabashed about her desire to see the best in people. Which is something that Lizzie has warned us about. And we are really saying it on full, full display here.
2: I also think the insecurity is at play, right? She's like, maybe he just doesn't like me as much as I like him. Which is just heartbreaking,
5: right? Like we I feel like we've all been there. That's so hard. It is so hard. And, you know, I don't know how tremendously reassuring it is when Lizzie says, no, it's not that he doesn't like you. It's that you're not of the right social class. And he's nouveau riche. And this is a family that is just class jumping like it's a pole vault and you're going to hold him back. And so this is the way it works, honey. And it sucks, but we're going to find someone else for you. I mean, it's just it's heartbreaking. Lauren,
2: why do you feel like Caroline is performing this?
5: Oh, I love you. I mean, it's more of the manners thing, right? this is how you perform class. You write the right things on the right piece of paper. But it's not like she's showing up to say goodbye and giving her dear friend a hug before they go off. She's sending this fancy little square of paper in which she's written all the air kisses that someone of her stature possibly could, or someone at least of her intended stature. And I love this nesting doll that Austin gives us of what happens with romantic love and friendship and how complicated it can be, right? We have Charlotte and Collins and Lizzie. We have Jane and Bingley and Caroline. We have Caroline and Darcy and Lizzie, and they're all sort of threaded together. And I feel like this is what so much of life is made up of is this sort of like jockeying and pretending and jealousy and strategizing and insecurity and heartbreak. And it's just all laid out in all of these relationships.
2: And the thing that drives me up the wall is that Jane has no recourse, right? She can't text Bingley being like, hey, what's up? She can't write to Bingley, right? Like, Electronic devices aside, like she is not allowed to go walking over and be like, knock, knock, what's going on?
5: She just has to wait. Well, and nor can Bingley write to her. So I think that this is right. we talked about this before, but it's really worth pointing out here, especially within a discussion about social mores and class. You know, a person of high class could not write someone of the opposite sex unless it was to propose to them or they were already married. Bingley cannot write Jane to say, here's what's really happening. Here's how I want to reassure you. He literally can't do that. It's against social law. So Caroline has to be the messenger, and it's hard to imagine a worse one.
2: What do you make of the fact that Bingley told Lizzie, I'm the kind of guy who will leave when his friends tell him to, and then he leaves when his friends (laughs) tell him to? I wouldn't want to date a guy like that. Do you judge him for this, that he just gets whisked off to London? And that's it.
5: I do at this moment. But, you know, again, it all comes back to the structure, right? It all comes back to money and social class. Bingley is someone who is newly in the middle class and is trying to establish the sort of security that anyone would want to have. It's still precarious for him. And so these are not people who are given the privilege to just operate based on what they feel about each other. It's all about this sort of class scaffolding everywhere and how how the building is going to to stand up
2: yeah. and I do think right like Caroline is just such a bully and Caroline, I think Lizzie rightfully diagnoses this like Caroline's got her own end game. she's going for Darcy. I I don't understand the logic of Georgian times, where if your brother marries his sister, you have a better shot at getting the guy. But Lizzie seems to follow the same logic. Consolidate (laughs) the capital. It's all about consolidating the capital. It seems not great to me, but God bless.
5: (laughs) Kind of makes Collins look good for a moment, doesn't it?
2: Oh, God, I know. So that's it, Lauren. We're done with volume one and we are going to be doing chapters one and two of volume two next episode. What are you excited about?
5: Honestly, what I'm excited about is finally having the gardeners in this book. I know. So we'll meet them in the next episode and I will love them forever. You know, we we spent some time talking about how Charlotte is hard to love in certain ways, right? You know, she's plain, she's not attached to a big fortune. There's a reason that she's 27 and unmarried. These are reasons that Lizzie doesn't necessarily have to contend with. And so, you know, as we were thinking about the different sort of weight of what it means to be hard to love or easy to love, I was thinking about two things, a remarkable book of essays called Hard to Love by a writer named Briallen Allen Hopper, and also about an essay that she had written in 2015 for the L.A. Review of Books on spinsterhood, which considered, amongst other things, the historical, personal, and political costs of being an unmarried woman. I got to meet Briallen when she was teaching at Yale. She's now at Queens College, and I thought it would be fun to call her up. So let's see if we can get her on the phone. Hi. Hello. <laughs> oh, it's great to talk to you, Briallen.
1: Great to talk to you, too.
5: So, you know, we've really been thinking about so many of these ideas that you have really excavated. You know, we've been thinking about how, how Charlotte is sort of in such a different spot from Lizzie. We've also been thinking about Mary and Mary's future, what it means to be the sister who isn't even on offer right now. I'm just wondering if you can ground us a little bit in like the very kind of real risks of spinsterhood, what it would have meant for a woman to be hard to love and, you know, how women have had to warp themselves to avoid that cost.
1: Yeah, I mean, I was rereading the Charlotte chapters of Pride and Prejudice and thinking about how something that that I really appreciate about Charlotte as a character and also the way that That Jane Austen writes her spinster characters is that they often are just so clear-eyed about their situation and really just sort of like having to balance obviously the desire for love and for intimacy with the desire for something like independence. And ironically, independence is something that you might only be able to get if you marry. (laughs) There's a kind of like irony for that with Charlotte. And thinking about how, you know, in a world where for a certain class of women, marriage is just the only career option. And so much of what you're able to bring to that is just completely beyond your control. So I think that there's a lot of poignancy in in Charlotte's story, but there's a lot to respect as well, in terms of the her ability to kind of like see what her situation is, see what her best option is, and just like, go for it.
5: (laughs) Can you tell us a little bit about how the threat of spinsterhood as a cautionary tale remains and how the danger of being an unmarried woman still sort of, even in the most liberated feminist mind, can feel like a dark possibility?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, I came of age... In the 90s, and that was like the heyday of Bridget Jones, which is just sort of um, obviously, um, Bridget Jones was like a retelling of literally a retelling of Pride and Prejudice, <laughs> and really just kind of like accepted in some ways this 19th century logic of spinsterhood where it was you know spinsterhood is is the ultimate shame and there was like a lot of irony in that retelling and it was um, playful but it was also captured the way that that this kind of category of the spinster the singleton there's like a kind of stigma to it there's a kind of shame to it yeah like I think that my experience growing up and figuring out the shape of my life was very much about having at the same time the sense of Being like quite liberated from these old narratives and the same time having them be kind of completely dominant in popular culture. And also, just in terms of like how my friends and I thought about the shape of our lives and like what we should be doing in our 20s and like what we should have figured out by our 30s. And like, we really need to kind of like find a life partner by 35 or whatever it was. Clearly, the marriage plot, (laughs) the engagement Instagram stories, like whatever, it's like it continues to kind of like find new forms. And I think that it's still true that it can be difficult to to find a way to opt out.
5: Like we have finally moved ourselves beyond the systemic limitations, and yet we still find ourselves in the narrative loop that we've been in all along.
1: Yeah, I think that there's a way. I mean, clearly, the laws that we're still living with were set up to put marriage at the center of all sorts of things, whether it's like child rearing, whether it's issues like immigration, whether it's issues like tax law, you know, like whatever, uh, property and inheritance, you know, everything is still structured around marriage, you know, like what, who, who you can like visit in the hospital when they're sick, who counts as family, like all of these things are really structured around marriage and family and social formations that, that come from marriage. And that's something that's just kind of really baked in. And so people who try to structure their lives differently have to kind of improvise around it.
5: And how does that look in a post row America? I'm curious.
1: I will say that I was thinking about the Lydia plot in Pride and Prejudice, which I think in some ways this idea of a young girl being ruined or whatever in, in some ways that seems really archaic but when I think about stories in the news about like 16 year olds being judged too immature to have an abortion and thinking about like the kind of gravity and tragedy and in, in, um, like this idea of like the threat that adolescent girls face I've been thinking about that in a in a new way
5: And it definitely, to me, underscores the difference between bachelorhood and spinsterhood at any age, how much that gets determined biologically, but also that gets determined by policy, that gets determined by culture. That's clearly something that, to me, we can't talk about spinsterhood without talking about bachelorhood, like the flip of the coin.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I think that because historically men have been complete people... And women have not. (laughs) Bachelorhood has a kind of sense of of, uh, fullness and possibility and exploration. And Spencerhood is seen as as much more of a kind of pitiable and constrained uh, situation.
5: Yeah, it's interesting. It, It makes me wonder how much readers pity Charlotte or how much readers embrace her clear eyedness, as you put it. And to have this sort of spectrum of at least the women I'm thinking of right now, like Mary, Charlotte and Lizzie. Mm -hmm. Obviously, Mary hasn't rejected a proposal, but Collins did not go for her. (laughs) Instead, he went for Charlotte. Charlotte said yes. Lizzie said no. It feels like such a spectrum of of desirability and therefore Mm -hmm. a spectrum of options, a spectrum of differing types of independence and lack thereof. And they f- feel like the same issues that we still feel stuck with when we look in the mirror, when we swipe right or left. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? When, when, yeah. when we engage with our own desirability or our own yearning hearts or yeah. our, our own weirdnesses, you know? Yeah.
1: I was really moved thinking about how what Charlotte really cares about is not losing Lizzie's friendship. There's a there's a way that friendship is the kind of like emotional core of her life. And she's willing to just kind of like let go any kind of romantic dream as unrealistic for her. But like what she really wants to hold on to is the sense that like she and Lizzie still have a connection and that's not messed up by the fact that she got like Lizzie's sloppy seconds. Yeah. And I think that in this kind of spectrum, you know, like Mary is like so self-contained and just like happy with her Fordyce's sermons and she's like great. And Charlotte still has Emotional needs, but these needs are not going to be met in the context of of her marriage. And I'm really interested in thinking about like how women negotiate that in the novel. You know, like whose approval matters to them, and um, where are they finding a sense of of connection or fulfillment?
5: I think it's important to so many readers that Austen never married, and that we have the story of Austen's personal refusal. That it almost feels like, oh, we know in in her own biography how much she gets it, how much she gets those risks, how much she gets that pain, how much she gets that independence. I wonder for you writing about this topic, how much it feels like like living spinsterhood has been important and how much it has determined how people see you as a writer.
1: I think that spinsters really feel underrepresented. And when I've written about spinsterhood or being a spinster, I've just gotten so much reader response. Um and I in fact I still periodically get DMs from people who are just like, oh, like (laughs) I feel so seen as a spinster. Um I think that having a perspective of someone who is is observing romantic relationships in some ways from the outside and has had different kinds of experiences. Like in Jane Austen's life, you can see like the seeds of the Mr. Collins plot. You can see the the seeds of the Wentworth plot from Persuasion. Like there, there are ways that she's bringing her romantic experiences to her writing, but also the way that she knows that like there isn't always an H-E-A or H-F-N happily for now ending. It gives her a real depth and credibility. And I think that that's really important to kind of come to these stories with a sense that like this is not the only possible narrative and you're kind of interesting yourself to a perspective.
5: Thank you, Brielle. And it was great talking to you. Thank you so much. You've been listening to Live from Pemberley.
2: If you love the show, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you are listening to us right now. We are a Not Sorry Production. Our executive producers, Ariana Nettleman, and we are distributed by 8Cast. We would like to thank, as always, our Jane Level patrons Viscount Elise Kennickerottenham of Unicornia, Baroness Gretchen Sneegas of Breakfast Carbsden, Knight Molly Reel of Worcestershire Sauce, the Countess of Kristen Hall, Dame Leah B of Pickleshire, Dame Becky Boo of Tiara and Duchess Biddy Higgins of Bubble Bath. Thanks this week to Briallen Hopper, Jenny Davidson, and Susan Zlotnick for talking to us. You will hear more from them throughout our season. Thanks also to Lara Glass, Gabby Iori, AJ Uramas, Julia Argy, Nikki Zoltan, Stephanie Sal, and all of our patrons.
0: Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare insurance plans.